Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt, felt, I felt, felt I right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well... I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories from storytellers who feel either too old or too young to be scientists. Uh, I can relate to a certain extent. Until I was about 30 years old, I looked like a teenager. It sounds like a nice thing, but it's not. It just means that you have adult acne and nobody trusts you with anything. Frankly, I'm glad it's over. But Back in the early days of Story Collider, I went to a storytelling show and I heard a doctor tell an amazing story. And and so I wanted to go up to him afterwards to give him my card and ask him to tell a story at Story Collider. There were all these kids sort of gathered around him asking him questions. And then he turned to me and he said, and how old are you, young lady? (laughs) And I said, 27. How old are you? (laughs) On the bright side, he felt so bad about it. He did agree to do the show. (laughs) So... On to our storytellers for today. Our first story is from Michelle McCracken. It was recorded in June 2018 at the Copper Owl in Victoria, B.C. The show was produced in partnership with the Association for the Sciences of Limnology and Oceanography, otherwise known as ASLO, and the theme that night was Water Connects. It happened spontaneously. I was sobbing uncontrollably in the women's bathroom. When I figured out that someone might hear me, I grabbed a wad of toilet paper and I ran into a conference room. I'd had this kind of meltdown before, but it was always at home, a safe place in front of my husband. The fact that this happened at the office made it even worse. Like, what's wrong with me? I should be happy with my situation. I'd gone to a top business school, I was climbing the corporate ladder at a high-tech company, managing managing a team of financial analysts and a big budget, like hundreds of millions of dollars. But the reality was I felt like a failure. I I hated this hyper-competitive work environment. Um, I hated feeling like this cog in a corporate machine. And I was just miserable all the time. I couldn't let anybody see my meltdown. Uh, The conference room had a small door. I'm sorry, had a window in the door. And I sat with my back to it, and I pretended to fiddle with the speakerphone that was in the center of the table. So if someone had looked in, they just would have assumed I was on a conference call. So I stayed long enough to regain my composure. And then I put back on my finance manager face, and I walked down this long, gray-carpeted corridor back to my gray cubicle, that was nestled amongst all the other hundreds of gray cubicles on the floor. 
Now, at about the same time, my husband and I had taken a trip to the Grand Canyon. And while we were hiking, we came across a wildlife biologist. And she was using special equipment to uh, monitor condors that had been raised in captivity and then re-released into the wild. And condors are a type of vulture that are critically endangered. And we were among a group of people that were standing around her and she was explaining what she was doing in the birds and um, the equipment. And it, it's obvious she loved her job. And she was with the US Forest Service, so she had this uniform on, a brown shirt and this hat. And as I looked at her, it occurred to me like, oh my God, she looks like Ranger Rick. <laughs> and Ranger Rick is the raccoon mascot of the National Wildlife Federation. And as a child, I, I loved animals. And I would wait every month for Ranger Rick's nature magazine to come in the mail. And it was, you know, a glossy magazine full of pictures of animals, and it talked about their habitat and the environment, and I loved it. And on top of that, I had all of these field guides that I would just go through all the time. I was ready to identify, like, you know, beavers and elk and, and you know, all these great, you know, mammals that live, you know, in North America. Now... You know, or, or I could identify them by sight or by footprint. I was really into footprints. Um, the, 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 the kind of reality I didn't recognize at the time was my family lived in suburban Detroit, Michigan. So the wildlife was basically squirrels. But so, you know, but seeing the wildlife biologist, I realized like, oh my God, I could have been her. Like, as a child, I was so full of curiosity about, you know, the world around me. And when did I become this corporate zombie? So the fact that I'd had this spontaneous meltdown at work made me realize that, you know, I think I'm losing control and I probably need to talk to a professional about this. So I started seeing a therapist that my employer paid for. And I did a lot of soul searching, and I came to terms with the fact that I wasn't well suited for my current work environment. So I started looking for a new job. And I, I put a few you know, applications out there, but I secretly hoped they wouldn't call me. My heart just was not in it. And I couldn't get this wildlife biologist out of my mind. I felt drawn or compelled to like, I really want to do something with the environment, like take this path I didn't take before. And uh, because I invested so much in my career in finance, I thought, oh my God, I'm having a midlife crisis. An early one, premature of course, but it's a midlife <laughs> crisis. And so I tried to put these thoughts aside, but they kept coming back. And so I went through this period of time where I was seriously like, should I stay? Should I go? What should I do? And I finally decided I would take the plunge. I would just leave the corporate life. And I made up my mind I would go back to school at nearby Arizona State University. It was nearby where we were living. And I would enroll in their um, conservation biology program. Now, when I told my colleagues uh, at my, my employer, there was, no, there was no drama. I mean, people might have thought I was crazy, but nobody said so. 
And the news made one of my analysts, Steve, really happy because Steve would be promoted into my job. So I'd been replaced before I'd even left. And I wasn't surprised by this because rule number one of the corporate world is we're all replaceable. Um, so I was excited about the decision to go back to Arizona State. But at the same time, for someone who'd always had like a five-year career plan, I was kind of terrified because I had absolutely no idea where this would take me. At the time I decided to go back to school, I hadn't had any formal science education in about 20 years. So like back in the days before the internet. So I thought, well, I have some catching up to do. And I, I enrolled in freshman level biology and chemistry classes. And that's when an academic advisor told me that I am a non-traditional student, <laughs> which I learned later meant I'm old. <laughs> um, so, when I, when I interacted with the traditional students, I realized they were young enough to be my children. And they didn't really know what to make of me. And they would, they would call me ma'am, which, you know, is actually quite polite and respectful. But my immediate response was, I'm not ma'am old. I mean, that's for grandmothers. And I, I wanted to correct them, but in the end, I just tried to, you know, be cool, laugh it off. So I kind of found myself in this no man's land where on the one hand, it was difficult to maintain relationships from my previous life, my corporate life, because what we had in common was the work. And when that was gone, we just drifted apart. But on the other hand, there was just too much of a generation gap to make friends with the traditional students. I expected to leave this no man's land once I started taking the conservation biology classes. I thought, you know, I'll find people mature that are like the wildlife biologists, you know, they're passionate about their work. And actually, that was the case. The professors and then the graduate teaching assistants were, you could tell when they talk about their work with endangered species, they loved what they did. And that, that was inspiring. And I, during these classes, you know, I was learning a lot and it was interesting, but I wasn't feeling this sense of curiosity and wonder or the enthusiasm that I was expecting. And of course, then the crazy thoughts start going in my head and it's like, oh my God, it was a midlife crisis after all. <laughs> I've abandoned my career and yeah, for these Ranger Rick memories. And... I tried to tamp down those feelings because at this point, well, I'm kind of committed. And I was like, okay, I'll just focus on being a good non-traditional student. So, you know, I threw myself into my studies and, you know, preparing for an exam. And one of the classes I was taking at the time was an ecology class. And I, was, I pulled out my notes from, you know, lectures a few weeks ago as I was getting ready for this exam. And the, the professor had given a talk about uh, elemental cycles. And this is how the key elements of life, like carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, move between like, you know, land and the atmosphere and, and oceans. And he had handed out these uh, box and arrow diagrams that basically showed these flows. And as I was looking at what I had, had written, um, I'd realized that I'd, I'd written numbers next to the arrows, and the arrows would be like, this is how much nitrogen goes from the soils to the atmosphere and from the atmospheres to the soil. 
But the notation that I'd used, I'd realized, and the way I'd written the notes, it's like, it's kind of like how I would have written it for um, like a budget. Like it's kind of like cash inflows and cash outflows. And it's like, huh, that hadn't really dawned on me during the lecture. I just listened and took notes. And then I remembered that during the lecture, he'd actually used the word budget when he talked about these elemental cycles. And my, re my reaction was like, oh my God, that is so cool. <laughs> I, I like, I, I wanna know more. I mean, scientists, you know, use budgets to understand the elemental cycles. And these budgets are kind of like what I did in my previous life, so great. So I steered kind of off the path of uh, conservation biology and into the laboratory of an ecologist, a professor who studied nitrogen in streams and rivers. Um, and I was getting paid minimum wage to assist one of her graduate students, Tammy, with her lab and field work. Now, at that point, I'd, I'd worked for years indoors under artificial light in small cubicles. And in the days before business casual, I wore like, you know, the worsted wool suits and I, the cotton starched shirts with a floppy bow around my neck. And so now here I was, you know, outside working with my hands. And after a particularly intense encounter with um, a flash flood, I complained to Tammy, I have never been this dirty in my entire life. And I was serious, and I wanted, and I expected sympathy. And, and she laughed at me. And I think I, I eventually laughed too, and then I proceeded to pick like twigs and pebbles out of my bra. And you know, I, I, how far I had come from the corporate world. So, Today, I make nitrogen and phosphorus budgets, uh, you know, trying to understand, you know, related to human activities, how much stays on land, how much enters coastal waters, where it can cause problems. And I try to explain these budgets to policymakers and why they should care about them. So I think what this tells me is that I've always been an accountant at heart. It's just I had to find the right units. And that was elements <laughs> instead of dollars. So thank you. That was Michelle McCracken. Michelle is a research scientist at Stockholm University's Baltic Sea Center. She moved to Sweden from the U.S. for the opportunity to join a new team that works to bridge the gap between scientists and decision makers in the Baltic Sea region. Her Swedish skills are limited to reading menus and navigating public transportation. Our next story today is from Ben Kennedy. It was recorded in May 2018 at Meow in Wellington, New Zealand. The theme that night was heroic efforts. Okay, so you may find this hard to believe, um, but in the past, my volcano scientist colleagues haven't always taken me very seriously. Um, part of this is um, the way I look. Um, I'm actually 42, and now that's awesome. Um, but when I was 25 and trying to be taken seriously in the science world, uh, this was more problematic. And I can remember going to a conference and 
I'd just given my first talk and I was all smartly dressed and it was one of these kind of stuffy geophysics conferences. I'd been talking about bubbles and magma, feeling pretty insecure. I went, went back, sat down in the audience and two old guys, two old professors were sitting in front of me and they didn't know I'd just sat down behind them. And one of them turned to the other way and we're like, can you believe that kid? He looks about 12. And I was just like... Oh, I kind of like felt myself all flushed and I had to kind of like do a sneaky exit and go sit in a corner and I was kind of, I, I wanted to grow up. Um, I felt like Tom Hanks, you know, in that movie. I just want to, I just want to grow up. I want to be taken seriously. But, um, but it's never really suited me um, trying to take myself too seriously. And I had a lot of trouble also getting a PhD position. It took me more than a year to get hired, and I always kind of wondered why. And later on, I found out that I had this reference letter from my British um, supervisor. And in this, this letter, it had a whole section in the middle that started off, you know, Ben has a tendency to behave immaturely. <laughs> and it kind of went on into various details that I won't share with you now. But... Um, but eventually I did find a, a, um, a supervisor who was kind of willing to, you know, take a risk on someone who was maybe a bit immature and kind of liked to have fun with science. And I think it was that, um, for that reason, I really wanted to thank that old stuffy British supervisor who gave me that reference at the time that really hurt me. But um, it meant that I ended up with a, with a guy who kind of valued the fun in science and that set me on the path to New Zealand. So I arrived in New Zealand... Um, and I'm still pretty immature and, you know, <laughs> not really taking life too seriously. But, um, but then um, the earthquake sequence happened, and the earthquakes... So I'm from Christchurch, um, and I live out in Sumner, and the earthquake sequence happened, and that coincided with the birth of my first son. Um, so these were two very kind of big things, and I kind of had to very suddenly grow up. Um, and I can remember the... One of those moments where I'm like, OK... Now I've got to grow up. It was a couple of days after the earthquake and I was back hunkered down in my, um, in my house and we were out in Sumner and we got hit quite bad by the earthquakes out there and um, there was a knock on the door and, um, uh, and my wife is very, very pregnant and due at this point. Um, and there's a knock on the door and there's a guy from the Red Cross and he's um, just kind of going door to door. Um, and I've got some information for you. Um, and, his, and his information was that the road out of Sumner was now closed. It was impassable um, because of risk of rockfall. And this is the only road out of Sumner. And, you know, we had our, our birthing plan and all this, and now we're kind of trapped in Sumner. Um, and, I'm, and he could kind of see my face go. <laughs> and, then, and then he kind of goes, ah, oh, but um, I heard that your wife is, um, is due, so I bought you this, and he had this bag with him. He gave me the bag, and I opened the bag, and I look in the bag, and I'm like... Oh shit! It's it's a home birthing kit, <laughs> like giant pinchers and scissors that cut flesh, and, and um, this kind of fear went over me. But I was kind of I remember turning around and thinking, oh, actually, maybe I could YouTube this. I could probably <laughs> could probably do this. Um, but then I kind of went back in the house and realised, oh no, we haven't got any water or power, let alone internet. So I'm not going to be able to YouTube this. So I kind of quickly hid the bag and went to my wife and was like, oh, yes, well, everything's okay. Um, and I, I rapidly grew up. Um, and, you know, the road soon opened and um, my, 
sun was very conveniently born the day we got uh, power and water back. So, um, but I kind of I started taking life more seriously, and even in my work too. And it started to you know pay off in my work. I was um, started getting projects working with GNS, doing um, you know serious volcano science research. Um, and I would even fill in health and safety forms without kind of giggling or writing rude comments or whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had one trip. I was, uh, I was going off to Hawaii. I had to take part in a various serious piece of TV called Lava Chasers. So, so we went out to Hawaii with the Discovery Channel and um, I filled in all the health and safety forms. You know, I might get burnt alive by... 1200 degree lava and I'll mitigate this hazard by wearing this massive ridiculous suit um, and we went out and did the show and I took the whole thing very seriously and it was a very serious experiment about bubbles and getting out of lava flows and um, and then kind of went back home and I watched the show afterwards which is embarrassing enough but the really embarrassing part was like I was deadly serious during most of the show and it kind of it kind of wasn't me um, and the guy I was there with was this awesome old Hawaiian guy who lives out by the lava, and he flat out refused to wear the massive silver suit. Um, and he, he kind of was dressed in kind of normal clothes, but he had his, you know, his own protective kind of um, thermal-proof um, stuff on underneath. And when the Discovery Channel interviewed him, I, I still remember, like, they interviewed me, and I was like, oh, yes, this is very dangerous. We're doing very serious work. And they interviewed him, and he's like... Even though I'm old and fat, I can still outrun that lava flow. You know? <laughs> and that was like, you know, I was like, I want to be that guy. I don't want to be the serious guy. Um, but, but yeah, I, this kind of side to my life. So I started to realize maybe I need to um, be a little, not take myself so seriously. And we, um, I went back to teaching in, uh, um, in the department and... You know, I'd have fun with my students. We had, so in 2012, um, there was a series of earthquakes um, on Mount Tongariro. And I was kind of joking with my class, oh, this happens a lot. It's probably just rainwater moving through the volcano. It's nothing to worry about. And as is often the case, I was massively wrong. And the volcano went boom. And, um, and I had to kind of backpedal with my class. But, um, but also I got involved in the... Um, in the science um, surrounding this. And, um, you know, most of the important science went to the serious people. But I managed to um, carve off a little bit um, related to the, the rocks that come flying out of the volcano, the ballistics. Um, a lot of rocks had come out of the volcano. They'd smashed all along the Tongariro crossing. Um, some had gone through, like, the roof of the hut. They'd gone through, like, the roof, the top bunk, the bottom bunk, out the bottom of the hut. Um, so it's pretty full on and, and luckily we could still kind of laugh about it because it happened in the middle of the night and there was no one, no one in the heart and no one on the crossing. So there was no one killed. Um, so yeah, we, you know, I was part of this big um, research effort. Um, and then, um, one day I'm sitting in my office, um, and we, so we've been doing this work. We have, I've also got a giant cannon. I forgot to mention. So I have, I have a giant cannon that I can fire rocks with. And I have various other kind of... I also have a machine that I can melt rocks to make magma. Um, so we've been using some of these machines to, and mapping where the ballistics had landed. And, and then one day the phone goes, and it's, um, it's Harry Keyes um, from, from the Department of Conservation. He's, you know... He's, a, he's the chief scientist at, um, in the park and he's been there for a very long time and he's, um, 
you know, he's, uh, he's experienced, he's seen all these volcanic eruptions, um, he's got a beard, he's got a uniform, you know, um, he's kind of a proper, the way a volcanologist should look, and, you know, there's me, right? And um, so he, he phones me up and um, he's like, oh, Ben, I'd like your advice on something. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Harry Keyes is asking me for advice. And, you know, all this awesome science I can actually use and kind of talks away on the phone a bit. And then... Basically, by the end of the conversation, I realized the question he's asking me is, Ben, can we make volcano-proof toilets? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's an awesome question. <laughs> so I'm, I'm made to answer this question. Um, but obviously, I was very serious. And uh, you know, I have to crunch the numbers a bit there, Harry, and we'll work out what to do. And, um, and actually, so we used the cannon and we, um, we used our mapping work and we actually, um, together working with Harry, we, um, we decided actually probably wasn't a good idea to um, put the toilets right in the high-risk area where the rocks could come in. Um, we decided to um, put them in a, in a safer area. So, yeah, if anyone's walking the Tongariro Crossing and they kind of get halfway and you're dying for a pee and you're like, why the hell isn't there a toilet here? You can blame me. Uh, <laughs> We, we decided to put them in, in somewhere else. And, um, and, you know, but this experience kind of made me, you know, start to really love science for the sake of, you know, just a really fun but important application um, to science. You know, I've prevented maybe a German tourist, well, sitting on the toilet and being interrupted by a large rock flying through the roof. So, you know, it made, it made a real difference here. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm starting to have more fun with science, um, and my kids are growing up, um, and my, one of my students made me a very, uh, silly hat. <laughs> so this is my silly hat, and I, I would love wearing this, I mean, immediately, you know, my fully grown 18-year-old students thought this was awesome and paid more attention to me, um, which was great, and my kids loved it, and, um, I started doing kind of outreach with schools, um, wearing this silly hat, and I would have this big sand volcano, and I had a balloon inside it, and I could pump up the sand volcano, it would kind of inflate and deflate, and um, I had these Lego men, and I would get the kids to tell stories with the Lego men, the Lego scientists, and, you know, the, the, the Lego guys, the scientists were always the hero, that was my, um, the, one, <laughs> the one rule of the story. Um, so I was having a lot of fun with this, and then um, they... Um, they decide to, so they've rebuilt um, Canterbury University and the big fancy new science building, and they're having a big grand opening for the new science building, the Rutherford building. Um, and they wanted, they were going to bring school teachers in for the opening, and so they wanted um, some fun things, so I was going to do my little volcano demonstration. Um, and the grand opening was quite a, um, it was quite a fancy affair, right? I kind of arrived there wearing my silly hat and my shorts and my T-shirt and I kind of looked around. Everyone else is in suits with beards. And um, it turns out Jacinda Ardern was there, the prime minister, to open this. Um, and so I'm, I'm sitting down in the front um, looking rather silly. And, and then she gives this, you know, classically wonderful speech about, you know, this building's going to be this centre where... Um, child adults can discover the joys of science and I was just like yeah right on this is sounds like she's talking to me here and um and then 
suddenly she actually was talking to me and she pointed right at me and she went, um, you, the, um, the first year student with the silly hat, <laughs> do you want to come on stage and help me open the building? So I was like, first of all, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, that is me and kind of, my boss was there, they realised it was me, there was a bit of confusion, but I just kind of bowled up on stage and, um, and I got to set off, share the firework pressing button with the Prime Minister when we opened the building. Um, and it was, you know, it was a great moment of pride for me. I'm there with my silly hat and my shorts, with the Prime Minister who just mistook me for an 18-year-old. And we're opening this building for more child adults to experience fun science and make real groundbreaking discoveries like volcano-proof toilets. <laughs> That was Ben Kennedy. Ben is an associate professor of geological sciences at the University of Canterbury. As Ben explains it, he loves rocks and working out why volcanoes erupt in various different ways. He travels to various volcanoes all around the world to collect rocks, then takes the rocks back to the University of Canterbury and does various experiments to learn more about the eruptions in which they originated. The Stork Lighter is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Liz Neely, Mariam Zaringhalem, Caridwin Roberts, and Daisha Herbulock. The podcast is produced by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Copper Owl and Meow for hosting these shows, and to Adult Acne for keeping us all young. Thanks for listening.